Welcome to Bring on the Mess, a show where we have real conversations about how to embrace life's messiness and how we find ways to show up and uncover our true self. I'm Lisa Lee, the Chief Clinical Officer at For All Seasons, and I am joined today by the For All Seasons Board Chair, Leslie C., who also happens to be the General Manager at WCTR. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you so much, Lisa. In our last episode, Bring on the Mess, Bethann and I talked about the topic of suicide prevention. And I wanted to continue this conversation because it's such an important and absolutely complex topic. And so for me, I feel like there is so much more that we can talk about. And Leslie, I know that you had heard some conversations and maybe that it had prompted some questions um, for us to follow up or talk a little bit about today. That's right. In my role as board chair of the mental health agency. I'm learning a lot about mental health, but my perspective is not from the clinical lens. Uh, It's more of the everyday lens. So I really appreciate this opportunity to learn more about suicide prevention and what I can do in my life to help people around me. I was touched by suicide in my childhood. My mother suffered from uh, extreme mental illness and attempted to take her life. So that's something that impacted me at a young age. And I think it's something that people don't necessarily want to talk about, but it's an important conversation to have. Absolutely. No, I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, one of the things when uh, Bethany and I had given a recent talk there was, um, we had talked about how the community is impacted by suicide. And if you'll indulge me in a little bit of a story, I would love to share a little bit about how that lands for me based off of what you just said as, you know, a kid growing up and having to deal with your mom's mental health and what that would have been like for you. One of the things I think that was back then, people around her didn't realize just exactly how severe the mental illness was and what she was struggling with. I mean, there wasn't education out there for you to look for signs and symptoms of someone who's contemplating suicide. So I think that's an important thing to touch on. You know, like you had said, that's not something that was really talked about, whether it was back then or even now there's some stigma still even about talking about suicide. And so one of the things that we talk with community members or families about is if there are changes in patterns. So for instance, if people are, you know, starting to pull away, if they're isolating themselves, changing usual habits. So if they're, you know, if it's a, a kid or an adolescent that they used to play sports or they did really well in academics, their grades are dropping, or they're saying, I don't want to participate in academics, or I don't want to go out with my friends. With adults, maybe not going to work or showing up to work on time, or really having a hard time getting out of bed. So some of those things are cues for us that say something's different and somebody might be at risk for a mental health problem that could include thoughts about suicide. You live with someone, if you talk about something like this in your own family, you see that person every day. And sometimes because you're you're passing each other in the doorway, you don't notice that. So I think it's important too, that you surround yourself with a community. So if you have a, say an adolescent who might be suffering with some sort of depression, 
it's important to include their friends in your communication so that they might see things that you don't. And it's just really important. And I, I think it's an important message to tell people to watch out for those around you and to always be aware because things are tough. People are struggling. And to that point, you've always got to kind of look out for that person in your life or the people around you, neighbors, friends, coworkers, everyone. Absolutely. I, my kids play with, you know, tons of little friends and I'm always being aware of, is there a change or are people not connecting or if their parents are struggling? And quite frankly, it's super helpful for me to be able to talk with other parents and say, is this normal? Is your kid going through this? And so really being able to reach out to other parents, if we're talking about kids or adolescents to say, is your kid struggling with this? Because my child's struggling with this. So to be able to have that community around you to say, is this, is this usual or is this something that looks different? And I think sometimes people will say to themselves, oh, I don't want to butt in. I, you know, I, I don't want to get nosy. I don't, that's not my business. But really, you could be so helpful if you see something that seems different or odd or off, just a little off, like something something so small, like maybe it's one of your friend's kids who comes over and always goes to the refrigerator and gets a juice box, and suddenly they walk in with their head down and they don't go anywhere near the fridge. That might seem subtle, but it could be huge. Right. And you know, one of the things that was brought up in the, uh, someone had a really great question, which was is suicide hereditary and i know that sounds like a big leap from what you're saying but it's the are they constantly changing the routine so for instance if that boy who or that kid who goes to the refrigerator to get the juice back if it's a one-time thing maybe it was a bad day but if it's an over and over and over Mm -hmm. situation then we want to kind of look at that as what's going on there's something different about the routine that's happening and that suicide is not hereditary. It's just that there are risk factors. For instance, that child is you know, changing the routine or there is substance use that you're starting to notice in whether it's an adult or a child. Those things are the risk factors that make it where somebody could potentially be uh, more at risk for suicide, but not suicide as hereditary. Depression's hereditary, but not suicide. I think that's a very important point because I think people who have had family members, as I had, you you mm-hmm. are, that is a concern in the back of your mind. Oh, well, okay, so my mother attempted suicide at 19. Is that me? You know, and going growing up, I'm thinking, am, am I do I have a tendency to do that? And it's, I think mental health and wellness and illness and specifically suicide are something that's just so misunderstood and you can't educate yourself enough about it. I would agree. And again, thank you for sharing that about your family. It's really helpful because I imagine as a kid, like you said, growing up, one, it's confusing. I've worked with lots of adults who, as children, their parents struggled with mental um, illness or mental health problems. And again, while it doesn't make you want to, because there's not a there's not a genetic component to it, it is certainly a risk factor that you know, as a clinician, that I would look at. And so, as I'm doing an assessment, I'm I'm becoming curious with my my client, saying, you know, was there anyone in your life that completed a suicide or attempted a suicide? And I know that that's a component that I have to keep in the back of my mind. That goes along with: is there are you using substances, or is there substance use problems in your family and or with yourself? 
So those are all the things that I want to learn about as I'm working with or talking with somebody. Then trying to understand, one, from like that kid perspective, what it was like. And then, you know, from the adult perspective now, how do I, and I I guess I'm kind of curious about that, Leslie. I know it's sort of a, a personal question, but, you know, as an adult, how do you take care of yourself so that, you know, you're making more sense, if that's the right way to say that about, you know, what you're, what you, what you learned about suicide growing up or mental health growing up. It's interesting that you asked that. So it's something that I knew had happened as a child. And I don't Mm -hmm. think I spent a lot of time processing it, which is, you know, when as a kid, and I think back on it, I don't think I did. But as I got older, it concerned me. It's just, when you have someone in your family that has an overwhelming mental illness, that becomes the family narrative. So, mm-hmm. and we joked about it, actually. We called it my mother's delicate condition. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, not, it's not funny, but it was because we made light of it so that it didn't seem so overly impactful. But it was just the way things were. And I never considered that I might think about suicide. I never considered that. I never really spent a lot of time thinking about would I have mental illness? But as I got older, then if I got a little depressed or something bothered me, then I kind of kept an eye on myself. I kind of self-governed. Oh, how long have you been feeling bad about this? And I think that was just, everybody handles it different. Everybody processes differently. So I'm not saying that that was the right way or the wrong way, but that was how I process. Some people don't process that way. Some people take it a little more to heart and it can become a little more overwhelming. And I think it's such, that's why this conversation is so important is so that you can talk with each other in a family. If you have a family member who has mental illness and they've attempted suicide, that you continue the conversation, not only with them and keeping an eye on them and we're and monitoring how they're doing, but yourself, how did it impact you? And it's important to seek help for yourself. Yeah. I have to tell you how much I appreciate your vulnerability and sharing because it was a strategy that you and or your family used in order to get through a really challenging time. And there's, it's not about judging that, you know, anyone does this right or wrong. It's about how do you, in my words, sort of survive the the struggle at that moment. And you guys came up with that as a way to survive. And then as an adult, you were mindful of what's happening for me right here, right now. I might not, for me, you're saying like, I didn't have this thought about wanting to to kill myself, which thank you for sharing that because I think that makes to the point that just because you have a family member that uh, attempted or completed a suicide doesn't mean that that's going to happen to you. That your your way of working through it was, I just have to keep check of myself. And I don't know, did you use... Like, was there a community that was helpful for you or was there other people that you use or was it you just kind of checking in for yourself? It was just me because, again, you have to you have to think about the timeline. This was literally like 50 years ago. So Mm -hmm. we were so early in mental health and wellness and understanding mental health that there just weren't those tools. There weren't groups that you could go to. There weren't, there wasn't really conversation about it. It was just something that the family dealt with and we just, we trudged through and we handled it our own way. So it's a different world now. And that's, I think, important to highlight too, is that if you have someone who's struggling in your family, there are so many resources out there for the entire family, not just the person who's struggling. And that was one of the things that Bethann and I wanted to highlight is that there is a community of 
people who can support you, but that also the community is like when we're looking at it, that there, there's a community that could be impacted by suicide. And I'm thinking about, you know, this 18-year-old who came home from college because the person that she had dated in middle school had completed suicide. And they there was this big, you know, funeral for this, this person. And apparently he was in jail and there was some controversy about how he died. And so the community of young people that were his friends were the story they were making up was that there was this conspiracy that was happening because he would never complete suicide and that just wasn't in him and there were family members like parents that were there trying to support the teenagers at that time because the biggest thing was is how do we make sense of this thing that happened and so Mm -hmm. there was some discussion about it but it wasn't really clear and then you know this this time where this person becomes Becomes a clinician, and there was a, a client who had uh, completed a suicide, and the family was left wondering, "What? What did I do? Mm-hmm. What, what was that I could have done or didn't do right?" And the clinician was you know, very upset because of course it was like what what was happening for this person and why why didn't I help this person and, and things like that. And so I remember that moment when somebody was there. So when we talk about like the things to say and how it's impacted, I talked with, you know, so like when I was 18, that was my friend who happened to complete the suicide. And then as a clinician, I had a client that that happened to. And I remember, Leslie, just like like some confusion over it. And mm-hmm. then th- I will tell you, it was like the most priceless thing that could have happened. The person that I was dating at that time just said, I'm sorry, and held me as I cried because it was just like, you know what? You don't want anyone to lose their life. And it was just so sad. And there weren't, it was, it was simple, like simple in I'm so sorry, and then a holding. Mm-hmm. And... and there weren't a lot of words spoken that night. And so it was, it was actually a really helpful thing for me to get through. And then I remember um, at this time, a family member coming to me and saying, you know, my husband had completed a suicide and I don't want to burden my family with telling them a whole lot of stuff. This was a very supportive family, but there's, you know, this person felt like, holy cow, this is a lot of, a lot for my family to have to carry. So ended up seeking out a therapist. And I remember she came to me and said, is this what therapists are supposed to say? And I said, no. I said, find yourself another therapist. That's not okay. And I tell you this story to say a couple of things or highlight a couple of things. One is a community is impacted. So I wasn't in high school at that time, but I can imagine if that friend of mine completed suicide when I was in high school, There would be counselors and people available to talk to. At that time, it happened to be some parents who were around who happened to go to the funeral. But we still kind of like you, Leslie, we didn't know a whole lot about how to have conversations about suicide. And so I would say that there were a lot of teenagers at that time still very confused and trying to sort out and make sense of something that was hard to understand. I would say that as a clinician, it was really hard for me to experience that from 
you know, as a, my, my client. And, you know, when we talk about, I know one thing that sometimes we don't communicate very well is what's the right thing to say. And I know Bethany and, and I tried to just say like, there's no perfect words to say, but that was a clear example of the person that I was with at that time, just simply saying, I'm so sorry. And like holding me. So if there is community that is impacted and you have a friend that they're child because that happens or their family member completes a suicide it is simply saying I'm so sorry I am here for you and maybe just sitting with or you know if that person can accept affection and it's appropriate then that and then lastly you know for that person who was trying to get some help in figuring out how to sort through the confusion of suicide I will say this respectfully sometimes you have to find the right people and it might be a family member it might be a therapist and it might not be the right family member or friend or therapist the right but like the first time and so it's finding the right people for you at that moment that was a long-winded story that had several different points in it but I really want to highlight that there's so much that can be impacted and so many people that can be impacted by people who are contemplating or have completed suicide. Well, and I think what you and I are doing here is very important. And I know there's a there's something that is going on. It's a campaign called Ask, Listen, and Share. And you and I have both yeah. done that. We've both yeah. just shared something very personal and very t- close to our hearts because that's what you that's what helps you if mm-hmm. you share something that's intimate to you and i think it it can be so helpful when you're having a conversation with someone who has either lost someone to suicide or is struggling themselves with depression or considering suicide to make yourself you use the word earlier vulnerable and say mm-hmm. you know what it can happen to anyone we all struggle at some point in our life. And sometimes I call them big feelings. Sometimes the big feelings are way bigger than we are. And that's when you can get into trouble. But sometimes talking about those big feelings can make them not seem so big. And I think that's what this whole thing is, is opening this conversation about something, as you said earlier, it's still stigmatized. 50 years later, it's still stigmatized. We know more in the, you know, you know more, I should say, in the mental health field, but we still as a society, tend to stigmatize suicide. You know, for somebody who doesn't have a clinical background, Leslie, have such wisdom. So I would say absolutely what you said. And the other thing that's important when you talk about, you know, we ask, listen, and share. So the listening part, and, you know, you and I are not face-to-face on this. And so I want to say how much I appreciate just the listen and sometimes I you know ramble on about these stories and again wanted to to highlight these points about how there's a community that's impacted and sometimes we're left like just not knowing and the listen part so if you're sharing with somebody and you are the receiving end of it listening actively is saying things like I'm so glad that you told me it's having eye contact it is you know making sure that you're sitting you know maybe next to or you know near somebody it's reflecting back what you heard what you've done with me so many times it's trying not to interrupt it's listening without judgment it's not that you shouldn't it's the exactly what you said, Leslie, like you shared something vulnerable, Lisa, and it's not you imposing your opinions. It's simply saying like back then, this is, there was a, there was a stigma back there 
And we're trying to break that stigma by having communication or having some conversations about it. So active listening is a skill that can be developed. And I really appreciate you bringing up the ask, listen, and share, because like you said, we shared something and the listen part of it is really sitting back and hearing what people say. Now, here's a question. If you are having a conversation with someone and you're actively listening, you're trying very desperately and you can tell that they are struggling and you just can't seem to say anything that helps. They seem to be in a negative spiral that just the hopelessness is overwhelming them and conversation is just not helping. How do you help them? How do you help them get out of that loop? I think that's a great question. And what I would say is that is really the time to reach out for help. Because if you are doing everything that you can to invite them in a non-judgmental way in conversation and, you know, you're saying all the, you know, the right things, which is I'm here for you. I'm here to support you. And yes, that sounds really hard. And I could see why you would think that way. One strategy that I do have that, you know, may be helpful before you reach out would be saying something like, tell me more about the part of you that wants to live or that keeps you here. If I could learn a little bit more about that part of them, maybe we can run with that. And then that's the part that can get to some more help, like for mental health. So if you are trying everything that you can, even the, you know, tell me about the part of you that really wants to live. And, you know, they just stay in that negative spiral. That's really where you as a person can reach out to the crisis lines and say, what do I do? Because I have tried everything possible to help this person and it's not working. And those people, those folks who are on those lines could really guide you into, you know, whether it's reaching out to local law enforcement or for us on the Eastern Shore, we have a crisis response team that can come out and do an evaluation. So every area is really different, but for Again, for the Eastern Shore, we have this lovely crisis response team that we can call. I say that they're like the mental health 911. Hmm. And you say, hey, here's what's going on. And I really would like somebody to check in on this person because I'm really worried. And then a clinician can go and basically interview that person to, to assist. So if you've tried everything, I would say that the last resort really is to reach out for some help. I want to point out, though, you gave us quite a jewel because... When you said, when you're talking with someone, ask them about the part of you that wants to live. I think too many times we want to say, oh, but you want to live for this and you want to tell them. You want to tell them how they should feel and who they should live for. But you, it really is important. And I think that's a great thing that you bring up. Ask them. Ask them to tell you what it is that's important to them that would make them want to live and why they would want to stay here. It works so much better when the resource comes from within. And sometimes people will say, I don't have anything. And so I might say, well, there must be something because you're talking to me about this right now. So tell me about that part of you that was able to be even open with me right here, right now. And so sometimes it's hard to find those those little moments. But if you can get somebody to talk about that, and like you said, that's it versus telling them, oh, you, you know, you've got such a great family or you've got such a great life. Sometimes that's, that's that induces a little bit of shame hmm. and they feel bad because, oh my gosh, see, I've got such a good life and why should I, I, I should be feeling this bad. When the reality is there's lots of reasons that people might be thinking about suicide or contemplating suicide. And so if you could just 
hear their story, that oftentimes can be really helpful. This is just such great conversation, Lisa, and and so helpful to someone who's, again, not in the field, not a clinician, but someone who comes across people all the, you know, every day. And you, you never know, because I think we all encounter people every day who might be struggling and we might be that person. You know, we talked about that earlier. We might be that person that just might be the right listening ear and might be the one who can give them that comfortable space that they can tell you what's going on. They can talk through what's going on. And you might be the one that helps them seek help. Absolutely. And let me follow up on one last thing, because I know we're getting ready to wrap up. If somebody comes to you, and even if they're not in a negative spiral, so it's maybe just the beginning stages, it's also okay to say, you know, can you tell me more? Can you say more? And again, that even even if they're not in a negative spiral, it's okay to say to them, can you tell me about that part that keeps you alive or that keeps you here with me or that had the, you know, the courage to tell me about what's happening? And so whether it's their And I I appreciate how you say that because the negative spiral might be on sort of the tail end and might be getting more intense. And so for, you know, maybe the beginning parts of the conversation too, just an invitation would be, hey, can you just tell me a little bit more about what you're thinking or what's going on? And that's, again, then when the active listening takes part. So then we're really listening to what they're saying in a non-judgmental way. And if we feel like it's getting to be too intense, like we can't, air quotes, get them out of that place. That's when we would reach out maybe to the community and say, I need more help. Here's the things that I've tried. Do you have any other ideas? Because Mm -hmm. the one thing that I want to make sure that everybody knows, whether it's somebody who is Mm -hmm. contemplating suicide or the person listening, is that you're not alone, that there is somebody out there that could walk you through or help you through. It's just like you said, Leslie, finding that person to be able to talk to, to, you know, to be able to help you through that. So very, very helpful. Thank you so much. I feel so honored to have joined you for this podcast and to be able to talk about this very important topic. Yeah, thank you, Leslie, for your honesty and your vulnerability and sharing your story. I really appreciate that. And thank you for being a part of this. And we look forward to continued conversations on Bring on the Mess.